One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello there, sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Hello, welcome back to Fighting on Film. This week we are joined by Paul Epstein, a Emmy-nominated documentary producer and director who's worked on shows such as Navy Seals, Brothers in Arms, Gunslingers, and The Men Who Built America. Paul, we're delighted to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. So... Um, we've been having a series of emails um, with between Paul and his team uh, planning this episode. And initially, Paul was going to come on and talk about Oppenheimer and IP and, and the way it feeds into making movies and, and how that works. So this is going to be more of an interview type format episode, folks. But we're, we're going to start off with talking about that original idea. So, Matt, I know you've seen Oppenheimer. I haven't seen it yet because of the when the, we we embargo, didn't we? Um, any films that were were struck studios, um, but now the writer strike's been lifted. I did. I caught it in cinemas. Um, I I enjoyed it, but I have my problems with it, as I do with a few of Nolan's films and the way he makes films. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's rare that we get that big budget historical movie nowadays. So you have to go and see it. You know. Um, and it and all of Nolan's movies now are event movies, aren't they? So yeah, yeah. It was it was definitely um, something I had to go and see, and elements of it I really enjoyed, um, but the, there was parts of it that I just didn't think worked in terms of um, what he was trying to get across. Um, but that's for another show. Yeah. But obviously, <laughs> we, we've spoken to we've spoken to Paul um, before the uh, you know the show, and we've talked about how. Oppenheimer could be used um, to to reinvigorate the industry. So, Paul, I don't know whether you want to just give a brief outline of your thoughts around that because it was interesting what you suggested. Oh yeah, thank you. Well, I also obviously I saw Oppenheimer. Um, I saw it uh, just a week after I or before I saw Barbie, so it was a bit of double header. And yeah. um, 
you know, I thought Oppenheimer, um, Matt, as you're saying, was really it's a, a big historical sweeping epic drama of the kind that we just don't see much of anymore. So as you put it, of course, we have to see it. And it's a period that I've always really been quite interested in just as a as a mm. documentarian, as a producer, this, uh, you know, the very beginning era of the atomic era, you know, in this case, the actual making of the first atomic bomb and all that. And it drifts into post-war atomic war, nuclear war politics and so forth. Um, so what is interesting about these two show movies is that they um, both really rely upon IP, intellectual property, to succeed, but in, in very different ways. Um, and I'll just, uh, just uh, break in character briefly. Let me just signal or something if, if I'm going off on a tangent that you don't Oh, it's want. fine. We love so, it on the show. <laughs> oh, okay, we're, so, we're tangential um, on this show. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I will try not. I will let myself be tangential. So um, the two films, Oppenheimer and uh, Barbie, are are both based on IP, but in very very different ways. And they're both really fascinating, fabulous films in their own ways. Um, the thing that makes them quite different, of course, is Barbie is based heavily on a iconic American or maybe global consumer product, uh, Barbie dolls. It's been around forever. It's frankly surprising there hasn't been a Barbie movie or a series yeah. or something by now since Barbie came out decades ago. And so um, much of the film is uh, the marketing and the promotion and the effort and the idea, the germ of the idea of the film is everybody loves Barbie. Everybody knows what Barbie is. Everybody gets Barbie. And to its credit, to its excellent credit, it takes a very, very thoughtful and different and wide ranging look about sure we all know what Barbie, but what do we know about Barbie? So I'll try not to make this the Barbie pod podcast. Oppenheimer is quite a bit different. Oppenheimer is about a topic that, yeah, the average American um, would I'd be very surprised if average American had news know who Oppenheimer is. Um, they've heard of the atomic bomb, sure. Um, uh, you know, people who are history buffs or amateur historians like historical topics may have heard of, may have heard of the Manhattan Project. The you know number, the percentage shrinks and gets smaller and smaller. The Venn diagram of people who really understand that Oppenheimer was the physicist whose genius helped create the first nuclear uh, uh, fission that led to the atomic bomb, et cetera, et cetera, um, is very very small. So. To the film's credit, to Christopher Nolan's credit, he made this what is ultimately a fairly obscure story about, in you know, the broad strokes American history, an obscure historical character, um, fascinating and compelling, and made it into a very richly watchable film. Um, now, Oppenheimer did actually um, was actually based on a biography of Oppenheimer that was written ten or twenty years ago. I think it was a a very well-regarded book and a, you know, a notable book, a notable biography, but certainly, you know, it's not a Stephen King novel. It's not a John Grisham novel. It wasn't a Game of Thrones type of a thing. So you wouldn't call Oppenheimer a big IP play, as we put it in the industry, as opposed to, um, you know, Marvel uh, superhero movies, DC, DC cinematic universe mm. movies. Yeah, um, They're all based ultimately on the IP of comic books, um, and they've been extraordinarily successful. Barbie, as I mentioned, is based on the underlying intellectual property of the Barbie toy franchise and all that's associated with that. And that has really come to dominate um, um, mainstream TV and film. 
um, it's very difficult to get projects launched, any any film or TV show um, created, and particularly a film created and actually made by a major studio without it having baked in uh, marketing already because the studios are so averse to uh, trying to spend what's an average of now 50 to $75 million on a film um, about something the topic that the audiences needs to be educated about. Um, so if we could have, the three of us could write the best screenplay you've ever read in your lives, but if it's not about something that it's about the game, board game Monopoly, or it's about the Fire Festival, or if it's about something you know, super topical that people mm-hmm. know about, then our ability to get people to say yes to the movie is compromised because on top of the production budget of making the film, they have to consider how much is it going to cost to get the idea of the movie baked into people's minds so that when they see a trailer or a poster or click a link or whatever, they can fall into it. They go, wow, yeah, sure. I know Barbie is. I love Barbie. I'll go watch Barbie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why um, historical movies and historical topics in general, um, you know, I have two minds about um, whether and how, um, you know, why historical topics are underserved by TV and film, but why they're the, the uh, studios and people pr- uh, commission TV, why um, I believe they're kind of missing the point of historical projects. Um, so that's why I think the two films, Barbie and Oppenheimer, they sort of compare to one another, both brilliantly executed in their own way, both eminently watchable films and wonderful, wonderful movies. They drove a record-breaking box office, which the industry was desperate to have, of course. Yeah. But coming at the idea of a major motion picture from two completely divergent directions. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Say, jumping off there, um, what Paul was saying about having IP as a baked-in way of marketing. I think if you look at the earliest cinema history of, of the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, we get these films that are based around historical events largely because they're recognizable to the public who's going to see those films. So in a way, they already have their baked-in marketing, like, oh, Bataan, I, I know about the Battle of Bataan, I'll go and watch this movie, you know, that sort of thing. So I think that's I, just a parallel that occurred to me then that it's that recognition of the topic, isn't it? Yeah, that is true. Well, that's that's something I've been speaking about as much as I can, really. So I'm, I'm a TV producer. I've been working mostly in historical documentaries for several years now. And what I'm trying, the message I'm trying to get across, what I've always been thought and what I still think is that History equals an, a virtually limitless, limitless amount of free IP, free intellectual property, in the sense that there is there are literally limitless, countless numbers of historical characters, events, or stories that an average audience is going to know something about. And when mm-hmm. they hear about that name of that character or they hear the reference to that event, um, they know what the project is, what the movie is going to be about or what the show is going to be about. And that is uh, accomplishing the the big goal of buying IP to begin with. So because uh, the, the, um, sorry, let me reset the interview, the, sorry, the example I frequently use when I'm talking to uh, people like yourselves in the UK is everybody has certainly heard of Henry the eighth and Catherine, uh, sorry, Elizabeth the great and Queen Victoria and, um, you know, David Beckham is now on Netflix and it's huge, you know, so if you look back to history, um, I'll say David Beckham's not quite history, of course, but in every country, there are these pillars. You'll be ecstatic of, to be included with Henry VIII, I'm sure. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm sure he probably considers himself <laughs> worthy of that. So history is loaded with names and events that people know about. And so if I, we wanted to make a major movie, major motion picture with a great story, with an irresistible main character, with an incredibly dramatic character arc of some sort, which is what every movie should be trying to accomplish, instead of saying, hey, let's go spend a gazillion dollars for a Stephen King novel, let's go buy, you know, uh, the next Game of Thrones for a, a, you know, whatever money. Amazon Prime, uh, by way of example, they they notoriously spent tens of millions of dollars. I don't know what the number is, you know, dozens of millions of dollars to buy the TV adaptation rights for Lord of the Rings, which is one of the yeah. greatest literary franchises of all time. And, to, and they did that in order to make this series called um, Rings of Power on Amazon Prime. So if there's any Lord of the Rings fans out there you, um, listening in, you probably know something about that. You know, the show barely made a ripple in the collective consciousness yeah. of the TV landscape. And it's insane that the Amazon Prime is the most expensive film ever, uh, TV series ever made. Um, they won't say exactly how much it was, but people are thinking it probably costs almost a billion dollars to make this series Wow! Um, uh, of 10 episodes. And it's a pretty, frankly, forgettable series in its, in, yeah. on its merits. It came so, and went, didn't it? I remember just it being sort of, oh, away. okay, it's, it's come and it's gone. It, but it, it's it come and it's gone. Billion. And so it hasn't made us, it, it, you know, nobody is you know, eagerly dying to see the season two of Rings of Power, as far as I know. Um, mm. I don't think I even watched the whole, the whole series. So again, history, uh, Matt, to your point, is uh, as being having plenty of recognizable stories and characters is something I feel strongly. I think, and I've been making that pitch over and over again to studios and networks all the time as I'm trying to um, get projects made. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And I think, I think, even with things, when you think about like how we think about historical series. We people always say, oh, Banner Brothers, like it changed TV. Oh my god, like it brought in this golden era. But yet, how many landmark historical series have there genuinely been that have been smashes like Banner Brothers, apart from the Pacific? And then, you know, if we're playing, you know, if, if we're looking into the future, maybe Masters of the Air, we don't know how that's going to be received yet. But there aren't as many as we like to think. Yet there is this plethora of things that have happened to us as humanity that are just lying there waiting to be made. You are very right in what you're saying. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, military, um, you know, military-themed TV shows and, and movies, um, you know, they certainly have resonance and power of their own. There have been, um, you know, several pretty big, big very successful big-budget war movies in the past five or six or eight years or so. You know, mm. Fury, I can't remember when Fury was made, but not that long ago. Dunkirk in 1917 um, on TV, Masters of the Air. I haven't actually seen the trailer yet, I, but I'm hopeful that it is as remarkable as that story promises it could be. Mm. Um, so I think the successes of um, of military uh, TV shows, military themed mil- uh, TV shows and films should at the very least not make producers and studios shy away from them for any reason. Um, I do think that there's um, in the world, the realm of military history, there is um, a equally limitless amount of stories um, that haven't been told yet that are not from the perspective of a, a a major general or a war leader or a, you know, 
you know, Harold Hadrado mm. or a William the Conqueror type char- character. But sure, I would dial in for William the Conqueror in a heartbeat for sure. You know, um, but the stories, the military history stories, I think um, the industry can and should be turning to are from diverse perspectives. Um, there should be far more stories uh, being ma- produced about the women that experienced World War II, World War One, World War II, um, Vietnam, on the various crises of the mm. post-war 20th century. Um, people of color, for uh, for sure. Um, you know, there were entire regiments of Japanese Americans who enlisted after Pearl yeah. Harbor, and they fought very violently in the Italian theater in World War II. Um, the stories of there's been uh, independent blacks. efforts, hasn't there, to to get a film made about the uh, yes, go for broke, the, couldn't they? They made one. Yeah, the the, yeah. the same um, the same regiment. Um, and I know that Morgan Freeman's been pushing lately uh, around a, a documentary show we did, I think, with the History Channel about one of the, the, the black battalions that was in Northwest Europe. That's right, um, it's the 761st Tank Battalion. I actually i had a I had a short brush with that project actually because I was. Uh, working on trying to develop shows with Morgan Freeman's company. And this was several years ago. And the development executive there, it's a very nice guy, was asking him, you know, what are the kinds of things your company or Morgan would get behind, really? And he mentioned kind of in passing, he's always been interested in this one um, this one uh, story about a black tank regiment that's not very well known. The Tuskegee Airmen are fairly well known, if you know anything about American history. Yeah, um, yeah. But this particular tank regiment is not... And I, you know, I probably have a folder on my desktop, something 761st tank. But this was years ago. And now I'm kicking myself. Wow, I should have followed my nose on that one because I knew I suspected at the time. I'm sure I could come up with a a show pitch, a concept of how to get into that story to tell it well as a documentary series or documentary feature. And if Morgan Freeman has a personal interest and fortune, personal uh, attachment to the to the project, you know that's the kind of uh, a list attachment that gets shows set up all the time. So somebody mm. else had you know followed my good idea to fruition, unfortunately for me. But I hope it's great, and I bet it's going to turn out really good. Yeah. So maybe segueing in there, mentioning your work, um, I just maybe this is a very general question, but what got you into making documentaries? Well, what got you into the world of of, of making them? Well, what got me into the world of making TV, mostly TV documentaries, um, is that I was already working in the industry. I started off, you know, back in the 20th century, the end of the 20th century, working in film um, as a first assistant director. And assistant director is like the stage manager for a mm-hmm. TV or film production. And so I was doing that for quite a while, mostly independent films in, in New York and, and in the United States. And um, the my work just sort of drifted into working on TV docs and in fact, one of the very first ones I worked on um, was a landmark um, TV documentary series called The Men Who Built America, which was on a history channel in the United States and it premiered in 2011. And um, it went on to spawn dozens of sequels and franchises from like The Food That Built America to yeah, The Toys That they've, Built America. They've all been shown over here as well. Yeah, I remember that yeah, being quite big. I, I feel like they're scraping the bottom of the bucket a little bit. It's going to be like, you know, the milk cartons that built America. As soon as we're just, <laughs> the, you know, I watch it. It's like, uh, it's like the office supplies that built America. Like how far are they going to go with this? 
but the power of the franchise obviously is real. So I started off working on that. I just had an opportunity to work uh, first as the first assistant director on the series um, with the with the company that was producing it. And I eventually did a tiny bit of second unit directing on that. Um, and then um, uh, the following year, I got the opportunity to work as a producer and writer on a different documentary series about the um, American gold rush of 1849 with the same company. And then I just felt, I just sort of started, uh, I kept working in that lane. I kept doing these shows because when you're a freelancer in the industry, if you work in production and, you know, you tend to go from job to job and one job kind of will point you in the next direction often. And because I've always had an aptitude and um, and a love of history, I found myself quite at home talking about and crafting historical stories. So for me, the overlap that was successful was I knew from being um, assistant, an assistant director, having worked in independent films, working in film production for almost 15 years, I knew how to make a show. I knew how to run a production. I knew how everything should work on a film set. And I knew how to get things done quickly and efficiently and how much you could do with a low budget. Um, and mm-hmm. so when I used that skill set and then I overlaid that with my passion for storytelling and my interest in history, I realized that it was a very, very good synergy for what I was able to do. Because, um, you know, by taking the ability to make something very, very good for a very low budget um, and then applying that to what can be very big stories, like stories of epic scope and scale, the ability to take a gigantic historical topic or story and make it into entertaining TV at a not epic and gigantic budget is a good skill set that you would need to be able to do the kind of TV documentaries I've been doing basically ever since. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Like just getting into the industry like that. And just it, it is very much like the history work with me and Matt do the freelancing. You do find that you just jump from job to job and you never really think about it. And then you look behind you and you've got this massive list of credits behind you. And it's all just sort of happened. Um. <laughs> yeah. And then you get into, you sort of, you start to get into a narrower, narrower lane in a way, because um, in your cases, I presume is mostly military history. And that's wonderful. It's a great, it's a very endlessly fascinating topic. And, mm. you know, I don't, I think there should be a way to ma- help military history transcend that one narrow bookshelf at the bookstore and you know, the notion that it's just you know a a a not that hip thing for dudes to read you know um i think there's there's so much yeah. fascinating story and character drama it has a bit of a presenting issue i think how it's been presented over the years this has just dumbed it down to that you're right that small section at the bookstore but i think i think i think things are changing just very slowly though i think the new generations coming up, I just think it's going to take them a few years to sort of get it where it should be. Um, well, I think we should all be taking steps to push it in that direction, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I do here. think as I was, as I was saying earlier, I mean, there's, there's a countless number of amazing uh, diverse characters who had amazing life stories and experiences, consequential life experiences that we would care about today um, in, in the overall context of military history. Um, and there's there are so many stories that no. could could leap onto the screen. The story of uh, Martha uh, Gilhorn, um, this journalist who um, was the only woman known to have landed on the um, D-Day beaches on D-Day in uh, in 1944. 
Uh, she went ashore with an assault wave as a journalist. Wow. Somehow she, I believe, I'm, I don't know the story as well as I should have if I brought it up, but she um, either sort of talked her way onto um, a on a uh, assault ship and then onto a landing craft, or she may have actually disguised herself as a sailor and just jumped on board an assault craft. And she wound up on the beach, on wow. one of the American beaches. And um, she had this extraordinarily dramatic and tempestuous life. She would, had Ernest Hemingway as a lover, and she followed the American army all across Europe and reporting for like Reuters or AP or something like that. I mean, what a great story. Yeah. Um, and so it's a story about a, 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 a self-empowered, ambitious, brilliant woman. And the backdrop is military history. Um, mm. And I think that's the way that we can try to turn towards um, bringing military history into the forefront of culture again by sort of lowballing, hey, this is a military history. It's a war movie. It's a war story. And saying, no, it's a character story. It's a character. It's a, it's a dramatic story about someone's experiences that takes place in a war. Yeah, and definitely. I, and, I, and I think that's the way that we should all be trying to you know, further mm. the cause of military history on screen. I think you're right. Well, Matt, have you got a question? Sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think we always say on the show that um, the war movie is one of those uh, vehicles that allows you to tell a whole gamut of stories from the human experience. It's a great vehicle for for, for telling all all sorts of different nuanced uh, aspects of the human, you know, human existence and experience. Um, I mean, hopefully that's, I, I'd heard of that lady, but I hadn't, you know, actually realized yeah, that yeah. she was in an assault wave, and and we're, we're going to get a, a a biopic with Rosamund Pike of um, Kate Winslet. You mean? Sorry, not Kate Win. Uh, Kate Winslet. That's right. Um, of of one of the the female. Lee. Um, yeah, Lee Miller. Um, one of the female uh, war correspondents. Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll see a glut of of those kind of movies come through, and that would be that'd be interesting, but. I mean, just tangentially off that, the way that the, the the industry works, where we get this glut of one thing that comes along every now and then, it's kind of detrimental because I think that kind of thing would be so much better served if it was you know spread out a little bit because it kind of saturates the market. And I understand why industry does that because they they see that something might work and is interesting and a number of different production companies might jump on that or studios. But it does seem to me that sometimes we get too many of one thing. And in the war movie genre, that is something that we see over and over again, where something will be successful and then other companies and studios will try and emulate that all around the same time. And we get like a small pop of um, content on one subject, so to speak. That that's very true. It's um, you know, the you know, studios and 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 streamers now and the commission, you know, the 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 commissioners of these projects. They see one big success, um, and then, as you say, other other studios rush the gap to say, "Hey, we've also got the same thing. We've got a great war story, great war movie." So there might be a little pop, a little uh, rush of that. But then the first time one of them flops because when you rush them, sooner or later a bad one gets made. Then Absolutely. everybody says, "Oh, yeah, they, they think only of the last one." So they say, "We're not going to do a war movie. That war movie flopped. Nobody wants to see a war movie." But they forget the fact that you know, Saving Private Ryan was an extraordinary hit, still is. And then it spawned off different projects and different wonderful movies and TV shows that were very successful. And then one bad one comes along and that, you know, um, it kind of poisons the well for the rest for the, until 
somebody yeah. years later comes back around again and says, hey, we haven't had a big war movie for in a while. Why don't we try one? Because we've got a star and a great script and let's do it. And then the, we go around the merry ground once again. Yeah. Um, with my the genre I've been working in quite a bit lately, which is uh, American Old West, um, it's very much the case. That's what's happening. Um, there's a show called Yellowstone on uh, yep. on, on US TV. You probably guys maybe seen. Yeah, it's huge it. over here too. Yeah, it's got it's got yeah. a following. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it uh, it made uh, the showrunner Taylor Sheridan into one of the most successful showrunners in in the industry, kind of overnight. It has um, at least two spinoffs, the series 1883, which really is quite good, then um, a prequel 1923. And these are, you know, prequel stories about the Dutton family showing how they wound up with the, the Dutton Ranch, um, the Yellowstone Ranch. Um, and so that sparked a, a, a minor gold rush, if you will, of other Western programming. And Taylor Sheridan has yet another Western coming out relatively soon, maybe this month or early November. Um, about a um, not quite famous black law enforcement officer. Oh, Bat Reeves. Nineties, Bass yeah. Reeves. Yeah, yeah. Bass Reeves is an incredibly rich, compelling, dramatic story. One of the a, a fascinating and great old west story that is. If you love the old west, you probably know his story or you've heard of him. Um, if you're not so into the old west, but you've heard of Billy the Kid or Wyatt Earp and a general idea, you might not have heard of Bass Reeves. Um, yeah. And so. There is um, there's a Billy the Kid series on stars. It's one of the streamers. Um, I think there's another one, another Western series coming out. Um, there's a little glut of these things happening now. It's actually called in the industry news the Yellowstone Effect um, yeah. because yeah, the Yellowstone Effect has been <laughs> spinning off westerns, but that'll run out of steam at some point, I think, because some one of them will flop. Probably Taylor Sheridan yeah. will make yeah. a bad one, and then they'll be like oversaturated. That's it. Yeah. We had it over here when Picky Blinders was big. We got like three or four imitation series, and then when Picky Blinders ended, everyone stopped making those shows. Um, it's it's really it's you fascinating. Saw it with the zombie happens. stuff as well, you know, like The Walking yeah. Dead, and that that yeah. happened the same way, didn't it? I mean, yeah. caveating off of that, one question I did want to ask was, what are the ways that you'd like to see your area of the industry, documentary, um producer, um? How would you like to see the industry innovate in the way it makes documentaries? I would like the way I'd like the industry to innovate in making TV documentaries by paying uh, a paying more attention to their value by understanding, as I said before, that we're really talking about free IP. Um, mm. People are always going to be fascinated by ancient Egypt. They're always going to be fascinated by, um, I guess you could call Elvis. Uh, maybe it's more pop culture. They're always going to be fascinated by. Henry VIII. They're always going to be fascinated by Jesus Christ, and they'll watch programming about that. So I think for first thing is that the industry should recognize that, you know, history has a built-in audience of some sort on, on almost every level is the first thing uh, in a big global way. And the second thing is um, to really start to pay more attention to the kinds of shows, frankly, that I make, which are factual dramas. And a factual drama is, a, it's also called a docudrama, but it's a documentary that has, you know, um, experts giving, you know, expert story and expert points of view about the story, but they have dramatizations as well. And, um, you know, the dramatizations of these kinds of shows, you know, they can range from being really a little bit 
cheesy, frankly. And that's yeah. why in some ways these shows, um, they have a bit of a bad reputation, but they also run the gamut to being extraordinarily rich and compelling as narratives of their own. So the show, The Men Who Built America, for example, um, I, again, I didn't create that show or anything like that, but I don't know if you guys have seen it, but when you're flipping channels around, you might think you're just watching a really terrific period drama about mm. Andrew Carnegie or John D. Rockefeller or something, because the production value is amazing and the storytelling is quite good. And then you might be a little bit surprised when a talking head pops up. So the shows that I've been doing, um, there's one called Into the Wild Frontier. It's about the early period of the American Old West, 1820s and 30s. You know, for me, that show is a, um, is a drama duck. It's a factual drama and the importance of the show, the value of the show, the, the viewing experience of that show is watching a, dr a dramatic story about a real person where occasionally your expert will, uh, again, will arrive on screen to briefly contextualize something or to make, make a bridged gap in the narrative that would be too hard to do in an hour long show to say, okay, so 20 yeah. years pass or you know, by the time so-and-so got to this place, this was starting to happen. And then you're back in the drama again. And I think the potential for this kind of show is so strong that I think any any studio, any network, any streamer, any of the fast channels, they should be looking hard at these shows for two reasons. First, again, free IP. Everybody's heard of Billy the Kid. Everybody's heard of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Everybody's heard of these people. And the second, these shows are actually can be quite inexpensive to make. They don't rely upon a big IP purchase, and they usually don't rely upon a star attachment. But mm. and when you're looking at this big, vast, complicated landscape of TV, and you're for flipping channels or more likely flipping apps on your TV at this point, um, and you land on a show like that, you could easily just think I'm watching a really great historical drama about somebody I know or care about, or that's presenting a new perspective about a story that I know, the, a perspective of a diverse character, a perspective mm -hmm. of somebody who has not been heavily focused in this in the, in the stories told about this period before. Um, and you will get drawn in if the show is done well, and it's done with a sense of narrative purpose. We want to get a character on the story right away. We want to hook the audience into that person's journey, what it is. Then the history part of it is in the background. It's the world in which we're living in, but it is not the point of the show. And so what I always say is when a show is like that is done well, when you are done with the show, you've watched a great story about a great character and went along for the ride and had a great TV experience like we want. And you've got a little dose of historical insight as well, kind of slipped into your back pocket without you even really realizing um, yeah. that you actually learned something about history. Um, yeah, I, so I those think are it, the kinds, sorry, those are the kinds of shows I, I think the industry really should be focusing on because they're cost effective and, and, and they can be made quickly and readily and, and they drop mm. on stories that people already know. Yeah, I agree. Like I think as well, it, for the modern viewer, I think it brings it out of the classic sort of older style of documentary where we're seeing the same black and white photos, the same stock footage over and over with the sort of same format of, oh, here's a talking head, here's some black and white footage, here's a talking head. But then it brings it, it makes it more modern. It makes it a lot more engaging for an audience member because you're seeing people interact, you're seeing actors talking. And it doesn't feel like, as you said, it doesn't feel like a, a actual documentary. It's it's more, I think it's much more accessible. I know, I know that, you know, when you watch documentaries, even like 10 years ago now, you think, blimey, this is aged badly, you know, in the way that it's made. I think right. the, 
it see, there seems to be a, de- a bit of more of a line being made now. We're going to make things a little bit more modern. We're not going to keep doing that old way of doing it. I don't know how you feel about that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. they should be cinematic, frankly. They should really have a cinematic sensibility because the stories are mm. often quite big. The themes are very, very big. They touch upon, as Matt was saying about the military history genre, they touch upon every facet of human experience. And so a well-done documentary series, TV documentary series about historical characters or, or events or a, a lost world. Um, it can be escapist. It can be dramatic. It can be exciting. Um, it can be great TV and it can be done at a fraction of the cost mm. of, of a masters of the era. I mean, I, who knows how much that yeah. tens of millions. Well, of yeah, yeah, I know. Probably Apple. great. Yeah. Probably awesome. But you know, there's also a way to do that kind of a show about that story about you know those people that experience those experiences at a fraction of the cost um, as a factual documentary that might not have quite all the razzle dazzle of Apple's production, but at the end of the day, you might think, "Wow, that was a great story," mm. and I'm, now I know something more about this period of history that I didn't know before. Yeah, because the story's already there, isn't it? It's already, been written, it's already been written. Someone's already experienced it. You've just got to go and find it and and put it on TV, and that that leads into one of my next questions. So. When you're when you're like you know when you're creating a show from the ground up, what are the biggest challenges you face when you're when you're making a series or when you're when you're planning one? What what's what's the difficulties faced? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, uh, there's two... Uh to clarify, there's um, the creation of the show and, and the idea that we're developing and pitching it to the networks. That's one mm-hmm. one area. And then once the show has been approved and you actually get set up to make the show, that's a different set of challenges. So, which one would you would you Oof. want me to address? Oh, yeah, well, I guess I guess pitching because that's probably the hardest part, isn't it? Getting it greenlit, I guess. Yeah, pitching shows is very difficult. Um, getting a show set up, as we say. It's very, very difficult, and it's gotten quite a bit harder late of the past couple of years because the TV industry is in, in extraordinary turmoil. So to pitch a historical project, you have to first overcome, you know, there's a series of barriers, you know, there's like lines of defenses that you have to overcome. <laughs> yeah. And the first one is, you know, I've got a historical story. And as you were just saying a moment ago, the person you're speaking to is immediately going to picture grainy black and white footage and old timey music and yeah. just be like <laughs> lightly be like, okay, let's finish your pitch. So the first thing you have to do is overcome the 
sort of built-in reaction of history means dated, old, and boring, and immediately grab the person you're pitching to with, what if I told you about a story, um, what if I told you a story about a person who faced this extraordinary challenge and went through all these extreme um, adventures and nearly died a million times, and then changed the way that they looked at the world by the end of it, and then invented something that we use today. Um, mm. That's a great story. And then um, if you can lead with that sensibility of, I'm telling you an amazing dramatic story about people doing things that matter, then when you you know kind of get to the point in which you reveal that you're talking about a historical story of some sort, you're, you've already overcome that first tank trap in a way. Mm. Um, and then the second part of the challenge, the second obstacle to overcome is, well, you know, what is going to be relatable? The second of three, I would say. The second one is, you know, why why now? Why do audiences care now about this? So why are they going to care really in eight to 10 months if the show, when it gets made, is really going to air? So, you know, we've had stories about this before. Why do people care now about it? And so in the pre pitching and development of a historical project, you need to explain to the potential buyers people care about this because of what's going on in the world right now or what's important to people's lives right now and how it relates. And so that's one of the great benefits of history, really, is that we can say this thing that we're all involved in and talking about now um, and that we care about now and that there is news reporting about, um, it's rooted in history. And we can see how this event in history has changed the way we are living our lives right now. And that is usually a pretty good way, again, to overcome this resistance to, I don't want to tell a history to people. Don't people know that story? You always have to be able to say they know a story about this, but not this story about this. Now, the third thing to overcome, you know, to finally kind of get across the finish line, hopefully, and it is a very, very low percentage win. Um, it's akin to aerial bombardment in World War II. That, <laughs> bomb that hit the railroad marshalling yard was about a one in a thousand bombs, you know? Sure. <laughs> yeah. So it's a military podcast. So forgive me. No, that's, yeah, it makes um, sense. Uh, so what are we going to see? So the people, the, they want to know what, what's on screen. Like, what are you watching when you talk, when you do this? What's uh, What makes it not a book or a podcast? What makes it not a Wikipedia page? And then you have to be able to articulate what the show is going to look, look like and feel like and sound like. And so, you know, is there um, archival footage that isn't overused, hasn't been seen before, that is high enough quality and is really compelling and irresistible in its own right? Like, well, we have a new trove of archival footage about this period. Now, of course, archival footage really doesn't go beyond the 1930s, you might presume, or so, um, maybe the 1920s. Um, I guess it's possible you could unearth a very rare, very early archival, like a very early made movie from the beginning of the 20th century or something like that. But you could say, well, we've got never before seen footage of, again, military history terms. Um, you know, uh, the photographer was at Robert Capra. He yeah. um, notoriously took hundreds of pictures of D-Day and then the the, uh, the the laboratory in London screwed yeah, them all yeah. up. Jur but Jury's out on that one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We yeah, talked about that so, on the show quite a few times, actually. Yeah, so... <laughs> You know, if we say, hey, guess what? Um, you know, Frank Capra, he, uh, we, that photographer, that, that, that photography shop actually didn't develop one of those rolls of film, it turns out. And it was just lost time. And now we found it again. So now we have the lost, the lost photos of D-Day. Of um, yeah, so sure. if you have that, 
that's the thing that gets people's attention because it's about a topic people are going to care about and be interested in, but there's something new to be had. So what are we going to see is going to be one of the big challenges to getting a historically uh, a historical project um, uh, set up or or greenlit um, almost anywhere. That's fascinating. It really is. Like it must be, you know, must just feel like you're hitting a brick wall with some people because they just don't see it like you see it. I guess that's really the hardest thing. Matt? next your next question i guess you've talked about you know the the difficulties of of, of getting a, a show made and pitched but for you what's the most gratifying aspect of the of the process uh, you've got credits for being a writer a director and a producer which of those three do you do you enjoy the most which do you find the most creatively fulfilling um so as to which part of the TV making process, I find most fulfilling in writing, producing, or directing. You know, they all have uh, they all have their joys and 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 terrors and pains. Um, directing, frankly, is probably the most um, fun and exciting and dramatic, um, particularly on a low budget project where you're really just trying to squeak by and get the best possible show. But you know, spending more money is not an option as it would have on a big budget project. I'm yeah. sure, again, Masters of the Air, the Apple project, they cut few corners, I'm sure, for the sake of the budget. If the producers and the director and the, and, and the showrunner said, well, we need five more bombers, they probably got the bombers. You know, so yeah, yeah. on a show like the kinds of things I do, that's that's never going to be an option. So, you know, directing um, is 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 exciting and dramatic and and, and 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 irresistible. It's kind of like a drug rush in a way, because you have the pressure of getting it all done day by day. And you have to, you know, harness a, a even what is often a kind of a, only a vaguely formed idea of what a scene should look like, or, you know, what you do or what you're trying to accomplish by the time you get to the set and the actors are there and the camera is there, and you have to be able to work with all these crew, uh, all these credible crew members, all these creative partners, with whom the show can't possibly get made, who make, you know, extraordinary contributions to what gets on screen. You have to be able to um, explain what you're trying to accomplish to them in a way that they can execute. But also you need to be able to hear what they're offering to you so that you recognize, hey, that what they're offering actually is a great idea. So we should try to do. Um, and so directing is, you know, um, every day of directing one of the uh, one of the kinds of shows I typically do is, again, it's a roller coaster of crushing sense of, oh, my God, I did a terrible job on that scene we didn't get those shots. I didn't get the right performance from those actors. We ran out of time. We didn't get that scene at all. What am I going to do in post to the, the, you know, victory high five feeling of what a great scene, what a great sequence. I loved that shot. We made the day by the skin of our teeth and you drop, you drive home at the end of the day thinking, wow, what a, what a, what a great shoot day that was. How lucky I am to have this kind of a job. And I should say, you know, I do feel very, very lucky to have this kind of role making, you know, uh, making TV as a writer, producer and a director. Um, it's, these jobs are are difficult to get. And I've had some degree of success and it's been through, you know, no degree of hard work on my part, but some luck as well. But also through the assistance of other people who have given me chances over and over again. Mm. Um, so I think directing um, is probably the most really specifically gratifying thing because you could equate you could equate it to you know you know playing in an important um football match 
or going into a high stakes negotiation and winning or going to a casino and winning big, you know, it's just got all this excitement baked into it. Um, and sometimes you win. And as they said in the old West, sometimes you eat the bear and sometimes the bear eats you. Um, and so that's <laughs> always fun. Writing is wonderful. Like writing is where you get to decide what the story is going to be and you get to you know what you, you learn, what you don't know, and you get to make the maximum use of what you do know. And you piece together, especially in historical terms, these beats of an historical narrative, you tie them together, find ways to tie them together. So it turns into a TV show and not a book or a podcast or a Wikipedia page. Um, then producing at large, um, I think probably my weakest link in this role is that I'm, I'm really not particularly good at, um, at budgeting. I don't really do much on the finance side. Um, you know, I don't balance the books. I don't sign people's time cards or anything like that. So I work with the, as a showrunner, I would be working with a production company they would be given the budget from the network to the company and the company would say, okay, Paul, you have, this is what we've come up with. We have X number of days. We have this number of actor days. This is the scope and scale of the production. Um, and I try to make sure I can fit what I want to do into the scale of that. And you work with the production company, but they kind of are the ones, you know, um, counting, counting dollars and watching the expenditures and pinching the pennies and, and, pulling me aside occasionally say, Paul, it's, we're running a little hot here. Um, <laughs> that happens. And so you have to adapt to that. That's my least favorite part, frankly, yeah. uh, the whole thing. <laughs> no, but no, one like, no one likes being told they can't afford to do what they want to do on a set. <laughs> sure. Sure. But then again, that's, that's all part of the process. Like I would not work much longer if I was, every show went way over budget. You just have to yeah, be able sure. to know how to do as much as you can with whatever your budget actually is. Yeah, for sure for sure so i mean i think i'm going to start with the patreon questions now matt if that's okay yeah hello i'm al murray and you're listening to fighting on film the world's number one war film podcast great so we have a question from uh ken campbell and it's a bit of a long one um but i'm sure we'll get there he says i'm always interested in what folks like him were influenced by what are some of his favorite documentaries or directors is there a subject that is his dream project? Um, have you ever gone into a project thinking it's going to be one story, but been surprised by something else in the end? It's quite a lot there. So maybe if we'll start with um, what are some of your favorite documentaries and, and directors? Um, probably. So one of my favorite uh, documentary directors, and maybe one of the ones that I feel like made the biggest impact on me is Errol Morris. And he um, did documentaries like Fog of War and The Known Unknown, and um, I think he did The Thin Blue Line. Um, most recently, he did this one called Wormwood, which was super fascinating. Now, he does documentary features, and he does these, um, you know, very, very thoughtful, but also extremely stylized and stylistic documentaries um, that are just irresistible, um, depending on the subject, and they mostly are irresistible. And the one um, that I think made the most uh, of an impact on me was uh, Fog of War. And it was a, basically a two-hour sit-down documentary uh, interview with Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense uh, during the Vietnam mm -hmm. War. Mm -hmm. And um, Robert McNamara is a fascinating person to speak to hear speak yeah. about all these topics. He was across this really pivotal and amazing period of American history. And the way he talks about it is irresistible. But what Aramoros does is um, gave it a visual, um, um, a visual approach that was mesmerizing. 
Some of it is really just kind of stylized graphic design elements, and some of it is extraordinarily well curated um, archival material. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember specifically in the fog of war, Robert Mac- Robert McNamara was answering a question about Curtis LeMay. Curtis LeMay was the architect of the um, Allied bombing campaign yep. uh, of, of Germany and, and ultimately of Japan, and really his um, his approach was bomb them to hell, like just overwhelming yeah. bombing firepower. And so as he's and so he's a bit of a controversial character in a way. So yeah, as yeah. Robert Nactamera is talking about Curtis LeMay, Errol Morris chose this clip of archival footage of Curtis LeMay. He's in a uniform. He famously would chomp on a big cigar, and he's got this angry mean guy face yeah. he's got a got a cigar in his mouth and then the archive this piece of archival footage goes on for about a minute we see him walking i believe in slow motion he's just walking through a military base or walking down an a aircraft aircraft flight line but just at the very last moment as robert nakamara is making his key point about lemay in the archival footage lemay turns and he looks into the camera in the archival footage and so all of a sudden, you've been hearing about this very fascinating, dramatic, controversial character, and there he is staring at you. And it was such a perfectly perfectly created use of archival footage. It's resonated with me ever since. So yeah. I think he is he's fascinating. I think Alex Gibney does really remarkable, um, remarkable documentaries. Um, there are quite a few. A lot of them now do true crime. Um, there's a uh, a documentary showrunner named Joe Berlinger who does he's quite prolific in the uh, in the true crime space in the United States. He's done many, many, many true crime uh, projects. And so some of them are better than others. I think some of them are, are as good as anything made. But um, certainly Errol Morris, like if anybody wants to watch a superb documentary that they probably wouldn't think they would like, but then they will like and they haven't seen it yet. Fog of War, hands down. Yeah. No, great. I think our our listeners probably some of them definitely would have seen that already. Um, but yeah, no, that's fast. That sounds really great. Um, and I think I don't know if I've seen that one. I have to check I, it out. I've seen it and it is great. I've seen Wormwood too, and that's really interesting. Uh, that's got like a drama element to it. Um, but actually, but... Oh, sorry, that's right. In Wormwood by Errol Morrison. Not only does it have a dramatic element to it, it actually has a star. It's got Peter Skarsgård playing. Yeah, this, yeah um, there's this a few controversial... quite, you know, recognizable faces in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I remember rightly. Yeah. Yeah, and great. what uh and what he does in Wormwood, so he's uh, sorry, I'll get on he no, said, no, it's okay, fine. It's like, tangent approaching. You could just give you a clean edit point. Here comes the <laughs> tangent. Um is um what makes Wormwood particularly fascinating is that the subject of the documentary is the son of a man who um he believes uh he believes his father was murdered by the CIA in relation to the secretive CIA drug experimentation program mm-hmm. called MK Ultra, But in the interview of this guy who is telling the story of what happened to his father, um, I tried to count how many camera angles there must have been. There were probably nine or 10 camera angles. There's every conceivable place you could point a camera is pointing at this guy. And what that does is lets Errol Morris um, create a kind of a visual mosaic on screen where we have close-ups and profiles and wide shots and high angle looking down and low angle looking up. And he can kind of play all these shots like an instrument in a way to, you know, highlight different points of this 
person's perspective and different things that he's saying. And you can just kind of cut to camera to camera to camera, either very quickly, or you can have multiple views on camera on, on screen at the same time. And it's just a fascinating, compelling, irresistible visual approach to mm. the tried and true sit down interview with somebody in a documentary. It kind of entirely breaks the idea of what a documentary interview can and should look like. And that's yeah. one of the many just extraordinary things about Wormwood. And I think it's a, a, an amazing, an amazing um, documentary. I think that's always the mark of a good documentary. If it can make you forget your, what you're learning in a way, like if it can do that, I always think it's powerful. There's a show that me and Matt love, and it was really formative for us called War Walks. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah. Um, Richard Holmes, a historian, the BBC made it in the nineties. And he, and it's, it's a it's really simple half an hour format. And he'll, he's talking about a battle, but it, it's, it's him just walking through the area. War walks. It's, it's what he does. Just walks through the area, but it's, it's how it's done, it was, it, which is so special. So it, it's almost you're just doing a, a walking tour with, with this historian rather than having loads of talking heads talking at every five minutes. You've just got one guy with you, and that, and we just love it for that. But I always think that's well, where documentaries shine, where they can just make you forget your learning because it's mm-hmm. like just really powerful way of doing it. So the next thing that um, Ken asked was, is there a subject that's your dream project? If you, I guess if you had a no and a no budget green light, I mean, what would you choose? If I had a no budget green light for any project, that is really an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I grew up reading about World War II. Um, I've always been an amateur World War II historian. Um, and so I actually have done very little documentary work in about World War II projects just for whatever reasons. Um, and so doing a really great, compelling um, TV documentary or documentary feature about some aspect of World War II that hasn't been heavily covered before, I think would be incredibly fascinating. Um, one specific thing I would love to do, frankly, would be about um, the Japanese experience of the atomic bomb droppings um, mm-hmm. 1945. Oh, There's two of them, of course. And so, um, you know, there's this famous book called Hiroshima by a journalist named John Hershey. He you believe he's the first American journalist who got into Hiroshima nine or 10 days after the bombing? And so a historical documentary about, you know, Hiroshima one week later to me seems incredibly yeah. fascinating in a way. Because um, what I think people possibly forget if they think about nuclear war at all, they think about the dangers of nuclear war, is that in Japan there are still living survivors of the atomic bomb dropping, uh, the, bo- the droppings of those bombs. People alive today who got up in the morning and they were on their way to work and they saw the mushroom cloud and maybe were injured or have scars. They're older, of course, they're World War II uh, generation. Mm. But considering that these bombs affected you know, even children or teenagers and that Japanese people have extremely healthy lifestyles, they, live, they can live quite long, there's, a, I think, a fairly large population of people who were in Nagasaki or Hiroshima on the days they were bombed. And they can say, well, let me tell you about the time I was hit with an atomic yeah. weapon. And so that's a story I think that could be extraordinarily compelling because it's a human story about these people, how they've lived with that for now almost eight decades. Um, and um, the message that they could then share with the modern world to the future about the, the fact that this is not a hypothetical, this is not something, it's not science fiction, it happened to me. You know, look mm. at my scars, look at what happened to my family. 
um, look at the subsequent generations of my family because the effects of the radiation um, to degrees that are not fully understood, frankly, still are passed down from generation to generation amongst some of these survivors. And so I think that would be an amazing uh, documentary. But there's really almost no period um, I don't find incredibly interesting. Um, I wouldn't mind doing a great, uh, I said I wouldn't mind, I would love the opportunity to do a really no budget documentary feature about the early American Revolution, for example. Um, I think there's a million stories that haven't been told very well about the American yeah. Old West, particularly from the American perspective. So a documentary series that really focuses about on the Native Americans who fought against Custer um, at the infamous Battle of the Little Bighorn. I think that would be an amazing thing to do. Um, it's hard to, it's kind of hard to pin it down in a way. I'll say one more thing in the answer to, um, you know, what would be my dream uh, documentary or topic of period? What I realized um, yesterday, I was in the bookstore looking at different things. Um, and I realized now that the Great Depression has not, in America, has not really been portrayed particularly well anytime recently in American TV or film, um, mm. either the 1920s. And there have been some 1920s shows. There's an HBO series called Boardwalk Empire, but that was yeah. several years ago now. It's probably eight or nine years ago. That was quite successful. Um, so um, a look at the 1920s, a fresh look at that, but really a look at the Depression, uh, the Dust Bowl. It was this extraordinary climatic uh, climate event of the 1930s that destroyed yeah the American agricultural heartland. I don't know if there's been anything recently about that. I'm sure Ken Burns has done one. I should know that. I think Ken Burns probably did a documentary yeah. about it, but if he did, it was not within the last several years. Um, I know Ernie, Ernie Pyle wrote a lot about it, didn't he? When, before, before he did his war corresponding. I know Ernie Pyle wrote about well that. Have, yeah. 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 I've read mostly Ernie Pyle about his, his war correspondence, but um, you know, um, and I have one more answer, and you can choose which one in the edit. And this is so. This, this might be both in. It's fine. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> on the third answer, so the a period I would love to take us a, a good hard look at in a documentary feature or a documentary series is the era of labor unrest in the late 1920s and 1930s in the United States, because yeah, it is full of yeah, it's full of dramatic stories and dramatic characters. And it's about events that continue to shape our world today. And I think it's timely and topical now because um, in the United States, um, unions are undergoing a much needed resurgence. And as we mentioned earlier in the, in this, in the podcast, you know, the writers recently, writers union were on strike. That's a, that's a labor yeah. action. The actors are still on strike. That's a labor action. Um, most of the big U.S. car makers have strikes going right now. I think that a, a really big um, service industry uh, union in Las Vegas, the hospitality industry in Las Vegas, I believe they're either on strike or about to go on strike. So all these things that we're kind of all experiencing right now, they have their origins in a classic class struggle that fought out quite dramatically and often quite violently in the United States in the late 20s, early 30s. And that is a topic I think um, – documentarians should be rushing into right now yeah that would be really tell. good that would be mm. that would be something i would love to get into frankly that would be brilliant matt what would you make what would i make yeah Ooh. what would you make <laughs> do you know what i i would love a feature film about it, but i would also really love a a well-crafted well-made documentary about the gloucester's uh, engine 
Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Korean War. In the Korean War. So it's yeah. British involvement in the Korean War, Paul. And there's a there was a battle where a battalion of British troops held off several divisions of Chinese troops. It's very similar to Chosin Reservoir, etc. Um and it's just one of those parts of recent within living memory British history that no one has a real conception of. And a lot of those men ended up as POWs and they had various experiences there. And it, it would just be a really fascinating um, documentary to to serve that part of you know history and and to, to bring it to the public consciousness again. Can you recommend I, a good book do. about that? Uh, to the last round. There's a few. Yes, to the last round. The last yeah, round. Yeah. That's yeah. a good book. Yeah. And, and any, well, any listeners, actually, that's a fabulous book. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, but no, you're, both, um, you're both speaking to a TV producer, so I'd love to hear other ideas. I mean, I wrote, I wrote down to <laughs> Keep pitching, Matt. Keep pitching. To uh, tangent off that, there was a 2002 BBC documentary about Imjin that was done mm. 20, 20 years good. ago now. It was good. It... it needs revisiting because mm. it's such a important battle within that war and there are a lot of actions almost all the actions the british fought during the korean war were pretty much the same thing but imjin itself is just so important because of the, the sheer battering this the gloucester's got um and what they did to get out is really interesting as well you know they they brought a column up and they they rode up a essentially rode up a big hill grabbed as many men as they could rode back and they were getting you know flung it from each side by by fanatical chinese troops you know, uh, tanks having to shoot each other, hosing men off the sides with coax oh. machine guns, things like that. I mean, it's, you know, you'd have to have a budget to recreate some of this, but it would be fascinating. Um, I mean, even just the British in Korea would be a fascinating um, mm. documentary series. Even the UN just do a series, you know, 10 part, 15 part series and, and really dial in on every single US UN nation that fought in the Korean War. Um, you know, you've got Turkey, Belgium, uh, South Korea, like you just it's it could be so enriching. Um, not just this isn't a bash at America's involvement, but tell that story of that war in in a way that incorporates the UN because I think it, it gets lost that that's the UN's first big war after the Second World War. And it just gets I think it, we, we sort of tend to, as historians, or at least on TV, it would seem, we go World War Two, then we go Vietnam, then we, if we are lucky, you get something on the Gulf War. But Korea's never really explored. It's but never yeah. explored. It's the it's a forgotten war in a way, um, and it's just such still a, is. it still is, and it's is such a major conflict, and you know it kind of skirts into Armageddon in a way because yeah. had to make uh, President Truman had to make a decision very difficult very hard decision early on not to use atomic bombs um mm. because less than 10 years before the united states military had dropped atomic bombs at, in war and yeah. macarthur who was the theater commander george uh, douglas macarthur fascinating i'd do a doc i would do a macarthur doc in a heartbeat yeah um, yeah yeah he thought the atomic bomb is just an, an especially big bomb he's like we got atomic bombs we can mm. we can use them we can bomb you know, we can bomb a major troop concentration. Let's, why Why do we have this most expensive weapon ever made? Why is it sitting on a shelf yeah. when we're, we're losing this war right now? And mm. Truman was prescient enough to realize that, you know, right now, the bombings of Japan, they could have been a simple one-off, never-to-be-repeated sort of historical example of what um, these power, these weapons could do. If 
they were used more than once, it would just become a thing people use in war. And yeah, he realized that is that that would be disastrous for the future and for mankind. Mm. On the American archives um, online, you can find a lot of letters that were sent to Truman at the time in in the 50, in in 51, I think, or 50. Um, I can't remember what exact year it was, but people essentially saying, you you, please don't, please don't do it. You know, like people saying that, you know, they understood why you did it to Japan. And even, you know, people saying that we understand that that was still bad. We understand why you did that, but please don't do it to China or in Korea. It's just, it's fascinating. Um, but before we completely disrail this episode, uh, tangenting off like we always do, but we love it. Um, I've got a final question here from Nick Lahare, and he asks, uh, what has been the most difficult documentary to make and why? If that's easy to answer. <laughs> so um, what was the most difficult, to, The mo- what was the most difficult documentary to make and why well documentary series um is mostly what i do um let me think for a second one of the most difficult ones that i've worked on this is actually fairly recent uh was the first season of this documentary series i've been working on now for four seasons called into the wild frontier and it's on a network called insp in the united states it's a basic cable network and not super well known even though it is a top 10 cable network all the time nobody really knows that into the wild frontier is about this early period of american history the 1810s 1820s 1830s in the west and it's about the fur traders and the fur trappers who basically were the first americans to leave what was then known as the west the east of the mississippi and find their way into the rocky mountains and ultimately um across mountain barriers all the way to california into the pacific northwest and they were the men um who basically found all of what we know as the United States, the Americans who saw them first, we should say, because of course there were Native Americans there for millennia before any American fur trapper set foot there. But from our immediate perspective, they were there first. The challenge of making the show um, uh, was twofold. Um, The first challenge was finding enough information about some of these characters that we could tell a um, historically, a well-rounded, historically accurate story about these characters, because about some of them, relatively little is known, or um, there could be could there could there be big gaps in the historical record. There's a character uh, named John, uh, Jim Bridger. He's a really uh, fairly well-known um, American, almost a folk hero in a way. He's one of the first of the mountain men of this era. And while there's a lot known about him, there's a lot of things that are not known about him. And one of the most famous stories of this era actually was made into a big movie, The Revenant. The Revenant was about Hugh Glass. He's a fur trader. You guys maybe have seen this. Mauled by a bear, left to die, but he's not dying. But then the two men left behind to to stay with him until he died and bury him. Um, They abandoned him and he has to survive on his own. pretty remarkable movie um but there's quite a lot of doubt about how true this story really is like was jim bridger actually there or was there just another trapper there with a guy named fitzgerald who was recorded as bridges last name bridges and maybe just one um uh, one primary source and so the revenant takes it as uh, doesn't bother to spend a lot of time on who the other person is. It's really about Hugh Glass and John Fitzgerald. 
but we did a whole episode about Jim Bridger and about this, about this event. And we had a lot of trouble trying to decide, is this true? Is this not true? Can we corroborate this or not? And so that, that's a challenge of the entire series is we want to tell the most dramatic story about these characters for the reasons we talked about earlier, but do we have enough reliable firsthand information or do we simply speak to the controversy? In other episodes, um, there is an event, there's a character named Kit Carson, maybe the most famous outlaw, not an outlaw, a frontiersman of them all. And there's an amazing event in his early life that is legendary, if you know anything about this history, in which he fights a duel with another trapper, a French-Canadian uh, trapper, over um, the charms of a Native American woman. And the story of Kit Carson fighting Chouinard is one of the most you know, foundational stories of this era. But nobody knows for sure how the story ends. We Plenty of primary sources say that they fought and they did something. And they even say they got on horseback and each of them had a gun and they charge at each other at horseback. This is recounted in many primary sources. But um, whether or not Kit Carson killed Schoenard or only wounded him or didn't shoot him at all, nobody's really sure. And that's a fascinating historical mystery. And so in the series, we decided we'll simply present that as the story. We'll tell the story of the story. We'll say this is the story about Kit Carson, and we'll explain mm -hmm. why we don't know why this is why it ends, and that's and why we think that's fascinating. So the challenges of telling an accurate historical story um, are, are often um, present in a show like that. But then the, another big challenge then is going to be um, how do you make it look realistic? How do you make it look and feel and be immersive so that you feel like you're actually in this period um, and the characters on screen are actually living authentically in this period. Um, and so it's a lot more difficult than you would imagine, um, considering that we were filming in Montana, which is where a lot of these things actually did take place. And Montana is a big, beautiful, gigantic state, so the size of France. And, um, you know, vast, vast areas of it are effectively pristine wilderness. They're federal lands, protected lands. Even with all these advantages, um, when you get down to the level of the characters around the campfire, um, you have to overcome the contemporariness of the actors who often will simply have, um, you know, facial hair or facial features or something like that. They simply, it'll be difficult to make them look authentic for just for mm -hmm. any, any number of reasons. And it's not, you know, facial hair, you can change, you can shave it and so forth. You can cover a tattoo, but there's an authenticity that is hard to define, that is hard to capture. So in that series, we would turn to reenactors quite a bit. Um, there's a big, uh, fairly big uh, mountain man reenacting community in the mountain west of the United States. And they have period kit, period equipment and gear. They're very, very familiar with the way that mountain men would have lived. And a lot of them grow their hair and they look appropriate and they just try to maintain the lifestyle in such a way so that they have an authenticity baked into them that I could never have, or an average, like, you know, handsome Hollywood actor can't quite master. Yeah. And yeah. so creating authenticity, it's in a way, it's the same thing as doing a science fiction movie in which you need to create or a fantasy film. You need to create a world. Um, so for Lord of the Rings, you need to recreate Middle Earth. And for the movie The Martian, you need to create Mars. And you need to make it realistic and believable that the audience feels like I'm looking at the place I could go and be in. And so the big challenge of a, of a historical series, in particular one like Into the Frontier, is 
making it look and feel like a place that an audience member with a time machine could land and not have it look different. And that's very challenging. And it's, um, and it's one of the great rewards of doing the show when you do it well. Paul, it's been fascinating hearing about how documentaries are made um, just from your experiences. I mean, I know our listeners are going to absolutely get a kick out of it. We did. Um, you know, and maybe down the line, we'll get that Korean War series because um, that would be quite something. You heard it here first, folks, if it ever comes. <laughs> um, but as I always say, keep it on for, for all your war movie reviews and more war movie fun. And uh, we'll endeavour to bring guests like Paul on when we can. Um, do check us out at findingonfilm.com. Uh, you can find the entire catalogue of the uh, podcast there. Start from episode one, try and catch up. If you do, let us know and we'll uh, give you a shout out on our socials. Uh, until next time, thanks for listening and thanks, Paul. Thank you very much, Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.